You're listening to The Diplomats Podcast on Asian geopolitics. As always, I'm your host from New York City, Ankit Panda, and I'm delighted today to be joined by a familiar presence on the podcast. Joining me is Shannon Tiazzi, The Diplomats Editor-in-Chief and Resident China Expert. How's it going today, Shannon? Hi, it's going pretty well. It's been quite a week. Yes, it really has been quite a week um, and certainly been quite a week for China, uh, which is what we are going to focus on on today's podcast. I think listeners have figured out that every time we have you on, Shannon, that China <laughs> is going to be the topic of the day. Bit um, of a giveaway. Yeah, so we're recording this on Thursday, May 28th. Um, just hours ago, the National People's Congress in China voted 2,878 to 1 in favor of the new draft national security legislation covering Hong Kong, among other things. Um, specifically, the new law will grant China uh, the ability to manage unrest directly in Hong Kong and addresses things like subversion, secession, terrorism, and generally anything that might threaten, quote, national security inside the semi-autonomous city. And and really, that's the topic of today's discussion is the question of Hong Kong's autonomy. Um, this is, of course, not a new topic. It's been something um, that we've talked about just months ago on the podcast when we um, convened last year, obviously pre-pandemic, when protests were raging in Hong Kong um, over the extradition bill originally after they before they spun out into general grievances. Uh, but Shannon, what I'm really hoping to talk about today is... Um, you know, why is this happening now? How did we get here? And really, what's about to happen next? I mean, I think it might be useful to start with a bit of background, uh, because this isn't the first attempt um, to do something like this. Uh, do you want to tell us a bit about how exactly we arrived at May 2020 and this national security legislation uh, being proposed for Hong Kong? Sure. Um, you could easily write a whole book about this, but I'll try and give the Cliff Notes version. Um, so in the basic law, um, there is an article, Article 23, that requires the Hong Kong legislation uh, legislature to pass its own laws dealing with issues of national security. Um, so separatism, terrorism, political interference from foreign organizations, um, that sort of thing. Um, after the handover in 1997, there was a push to actually implement this le legislation by Hong Kong's uh, Legislative Council, LegCo, in 2003. And that sparked massive protests. Hong Kongers were very afraid that this bill was going to cur curtail their freedom of speech, freedom of assembly, uh, the rule of law. And this, it, it should be obvious to most of our listeners why, right? Because the Chinese constitution guarantees, you know, the freedom of speech, the freedom of the press, the freedom of assembly, but in practice, none of those rights are adhered to because they believe that concerns of national security and um, explicitly the Communist Party's security will trump any individual rights. And that's what Hong Kongers did not want to happen. They did not want to have legislation imposed that could supersede um, their existing rights and freedoms. So you had these massive protests um estimates vary as is generally the case but let's say around half a million people um coming out onto the street on july 1st 2003 to show that they did not want this legislation to pass um there were defections from the people who had been supporting it in the legislature and no longer had the votes to pass the bill was tabled um it was really a disgrace for the local government in hong kong lots of people were forced to resign and the backlash was so big that no government in Hong Kong since has touched this. 
Um, now, fast forward to 2019, you have these massive protests happening again over the extradition law, as you noted, which is completely separate from the national security law. But I think it really reminded Beijing that this national security law had never been implemented. Um, and Beijing was starting to push to say, we need to get this on the books. And essentially what they've done in this latest decision is admit that there is no way this law will ever pass through the Hong Kong legislative process. Um, now, of course, in Beijing's mind, that's because of sabotage from hostile foreign forces rather than organic discontent by Hong Kongers. But they've essentially admitted this is not politically feasible to do in Hong Kong. So we're going to do it in Beijing. We are going to write a law in Beijing that criminalizes and allows Beijing to directly deal with um, topics like separatism, Hong Kong independence, terrorism, foreign interference, all of which, of course, are very much up for interpretation. And that law will be then placed under Annex 3 of the Basic Law, which essentially means now it's a Hong Kong law. So what we're having is Beijing writing its own national security law for Hong Kong. Right. And so the the question that then arises is the compatibility of this with um, one country, two systems, the notion of an autonomous Hong Kong. Uh, Chinese Premier um, Li Keqiang was quoted as saying that the national security law would allow for, quote, the steady implementation of the one country, two systems framework in, in Hong Kong. And uh, obviously the United States and a few other countries disagree with that quite, quite sharply. Um, the U.S. State Department, um, Mike Pompeo, put out a statement saying that uh, he doesn't consider Hong Kong to be sufficiently autonomous anymore. Uh, what that will mean in practical terms is, I think, still an open question. Um, but let's talk a little bit about what what happens now. Um, you know, you're seeing a lot of headlines that this is uh, effectively the end of Hong Kong in um, as we know it in many ways as a financial hub, given the powers that Beijing will potentially be able to exercise as a result of this national security law. But but how do you expect uh, implementation to actually go? I mean, are we looking at a situation that we were potentially discussing last year where one of the anxieties um, as the protests grew larger and larger was that China would send in the People's Armed Police or something like that into Hong Kong? Is something like that a lot more realistic now, uh, given this national security law? So I think it's important to note that uh, as of yet, there is no national security law for Hong Kong. What this draft decision does is it authorizes the standing committee of the National People's Congress to write a national security law for Hong Kong. And that is certainly going to happen um, probably in the next few months. But the law hasn't been written yet. So we don't know what's in it. Um, we can make some pretty good guesses based on the language of the draft bill. Uh, it's very clear that this is going to be targeting activities that Beijing would consider um, separatism, pro-independence for Hong Kong, or and foreign interference. Um, but what that actually means in practice, we don't know. Um, so you could foresee a situation, which I think is very much what Beijing and the Hong Kong government would like, where political freedoms are very much restricted but they try to allow for the rule of law in the sense that businesses can still conduct their operations. Um, and the sort of trade restrictions that you see on the Chinese market uh, aren't applied to Hong Kong. So you would essentially have one country, two different economic systems and economic rules, um, but the political freedoms that Hong Kong has enjoyed for so long would be uh, pretty sharply restrained. And in particular, I think we should very much expect to see 
foreign NGOs um, that have often operated in Hong Kong because they're not allowed to function on mainland China. Um, I think their days are very much numbered in Hong Kong, but we'll have to see exactly what the national security law says on that front. Um, and of course, it's a very slippery slope, right? If you start politicizing the judiciary, uh, it, which critics would say we've already seen in Hong Kong where protesters are being arrested and charged with you know, illegal activities, if you start doing that, can you really keep it independent in trade cases? You know, what happens if it's a party member's brother who owns one company who's going against a, another company? Um, can you really keep the judiciary independent in those situations? So I think there's a lot of uncertainty. Um, we can pretty easily say that this is going to be very damaging for Hong Kong's reputation as um a financial hub and also as a bastion of, you know, rule of law and um, personal freedom in Chinese territory. But we don't know exactly how damaging it's going to be until we see what the actual law says and we get some sense of how the phrases being used in it are going to be interpreted. Right. No, that's a that's a helpful clarification. Um, most of the estimates I've seen suggest that the law will be in place and written um, towards the latter half of the year. Um, so so that'll be interesting to uh, keep an eye on. Um, let's talk a little bit about the international reaction. Um, obviously, this is coming at a time of heightened geopolitical tensions between the U.S. and China for uh, over a variety of reasons, um, not, you know, not least uh, the pandemic and the administration's continued focus on China's culpability there. Um, but, you know, we actually had the the um, the passage of the uh, National Security Law Authority in the National People's Congress coincide, uh, for example, with um, a, a new uh, step in the extradition case of Meng Wanzhou in Canada, highlighting ongoing disagreements between the two countries there. But um, there has been talk about what steps the United States could take, uh, including um, changing the special relationship that the United States has with Hong Kong. Um, and uh, potentially even sanctioning uh, individuals and entities involved with the implementation of uh, any any potential uh, national security law with China. If, if these things do happen, um, well, first of all, how likely do you think those are to happen? What do you think the U.S. is likely to do here, given what we know about the Trump administration? And, and second, um, if, if this does happen, I mean, what will that how, how will China react? Um. So as you mentioned earlier, we saw um, Mike Pompeo officially certify to Congress that the Trump administration no longer considers Hong Kong to be autonomous. And that means, as Pompeo said, that Hong Kong no longer merits the sort of special treatment that it has received under U.S. law. Um, in my view, that obligates the Trump administration to take some sort of action curtailing Hong Kong's special treatment. Um, there's essentially no rationale for making that sort of big pronouncement if you're not going to do anything to follow up on it. But there's a wide range of actions that the Trump administration could take. You know, there's sort of the nuclear option, which is dissolving all of Hong Kong's special treatment and saying, okay, Hong Kong's now, you know, just any other Chinese city, which is the phrase that you often hear thrown about, uh, which means no special privileges in terms of export controls or tariffs um, or anything like that. I don't think we're likely to see that immediately, both because that would be very bad for U.S. business interests, but also because that eliminates any negotiating leverage that the United States might have. Uh, if the goal is to prevent Beijing from doing this or somehow change or ameliorate Beijing's behavior, 
if you immediately use all your leverage um, in that sort of step, you give up any potential for changing that behavior. Now, uh, it's very unlikely that at this point, the US is going to be able to change Beijing's behavior. As I mentioned, one of the main uh, impetuses behind this is China believes and is promoting the narrative that all the unrest in Hong Kong is because of foreign interference. Uh, it's because of foreign forces, foreign black hands, uh, hostile enemies who are manipulating the Hong Kong people into these expressions of discontent and also violence that we've seen. So this, in a way, plays right into Beijing's hand. Um, you're already seeing Chinese officials and media outlets talking about this Pompeo's declaration as more interference in Hong Kong affairs. And so there's really very little incentive for the Chinese government to back down, given the narrative it's constructed for itself. Um, so I think the Trump administration is is likely going to take some steps that will be more on the symbolic front. Um, the wild card here is, is U.S. Congress. Uh, this got completely buried in all the Hong Kong news, but Congress just passed a Uyghur Human Rights Act that calls for sanctions on Chinese government officials being held accountable for the persecution of Uyghurs and Muslim minorities in Xinjiang. Um, and, you know, you had the Hong Kong Human Rights Democracy Act that passed last year with only a single dissenting vote in either House of Congress. There is clearly very strong congressional support for taking action, you know, quote unquote, getting tough on China. So I think we are likely to see bills put forward uh, that are going to call for sanctions on Chinese officials involved in this, possibly including Hong Kong officials, um, they say Carrie Lam. Uh, and, you know, that's going to be a decision the Trump administration will have to make. You know, how much does it want to throw its support behind these bills? And given the current climate, um, I think it's going to be very hard for the administration to back away from something that Congress puts forward. So, yeah, I would actually watch the U.S. Congress to see what's going on there, um, in addition to the signals coming out of the administration itself. Mm -hmm. And in the in the short term, um, I mean, we are going to see continued protests in Hong Kong. Uh, obviously, we have the um, June 4th anniversary just around the corner um, as we record. Um, I think um, that'll be interesting to see how that's uh, commemorated this year, particularly uh, amidst the pandemic. What else do you expect to see in, in Hong Kong itself in the short run? Um, I think we're going to see a continuation of what we've already seen, which is the government is going to try and forestall any mass protests, um, essentially by denying people the, the permission to protest. And that's you know, denying applications because they believe it might lead to violence, as we saw late last year. But also now they have the COVID pandemic, which acts as a handy rationale. They can say, oh, we can't allow these marches for public health reasons, right? Because it's a COVID infection risk. Um, and what that does is essentially anyone who turns up to march then can be arrested for illegal assembly, which is what we've been seeing pretty much since this um, decision, the draft decision was first announced last week is Hong Kongers are showing up on the street. They're immediately being tear gassed, pepper sprayed and arrested by the Hong Kong police because they don't have permission to demonstrate. Uh, and this is essentially exactly what Hong Kongers were afraid of, which is that these permission, these rights exist on paper, but there's no way to actually make use of them because the government will not give you the permissions that it has now said are required to make use of of your rights. So we're going to continue to see this 
tension between um, mass discontent um, and public anger in Hong Kong and a very tight control by the government to try to prevent these protests from getting out of hand. Uh, and as you said, we have some very big anniversaries coming up. Uh, the Hong Kong government has already signaled that it's not uh, keen to approve the sort of mass anniversary marches that we've seen in the past for the Tiananmen Square vigils. Uh, so we'll have to see how many people come out in defiance of you know, the government regulations and also you know, essentially risking COVID infection, which is still a serious concern. We can't downplay that either. Mm-hmm. Uh, you also have the anniversary of the 2019 anti-extradition law protests coming up in June and July. So there are a lot of key dates that we'll have to see um, how the opposition can creatively mobilize people uh, when that has become so much more difficult over the past year. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, I mean, just as a as a closing thought, I mean, something that again comes to mind is um, to sort of uh, change the subject a little. We just saw um, Taiwanese President Tsai Ing-wen inaugurated for a second term, um, and I think she had some very um, explicit things to say about how Taiwan continues to view the notion of one country, two systems. And of course, days after um, her inauguration, we we enter this um, this uh, you know drama at the National People's Congress over over the future of one country, two systems in Hong Kong. So if Beijing is trying to show Taiwan that that is the path ahead, um, really this doesn't seem to be the way to do it, um, to say the least. Yeah, it's definitely not uh, an attractive promotion for Taiwan of what one country, two systems is. Um, There's also been a lot of solidarity in Taiwan for the plight of Hong Kongers. Uh, You see the slogan, today's Hong Kong, tomorrow's Taiwan. There's a real sense that Taiwanese need to stand up for Hong Kongers if they want to prevent the same from happening to Taiwan in the future. Um, So yeah, we're going to be looking a little bit later this week at what that actually means in terms of is Taiwan going to be willing to formally offer asylum to many of these Hong Kong protesters and opposition figures. Um, well, yeah, a little preview of what to look for on the diplomat in the, in the coming days. Great. Well, Shannon, thanks a lot for uh, coming on the podcast to help us make sense of all this. Yeah, sure. Always happy to join you on Good. Great. Thanks. And we'll be happy to have you on soon. For listeners, if you've been a subscriber to the podcast but you haven't yet left us a review, we'd really appreciate it if you could do that. It really helps get the word out about the show. And if you haven't yet subscribed, please do so. We'd uh, we'd love for you to keep up with uh, future coverage on on this podcast. Finally, before we close, a quick note from our sponsor. This episode of the Asia Geopolitics Podcast is brought to you by Diplomat Risk Intelligence, or DRI. DRI is the Consulting and Analysis Division of The Diplomat, the Asia-Pacific's leading current affairs magazine. Since its launch in 2002, The Diplomat has been dedicated to quality analysis and commentary on events and trends in Asia and around the world, and is now one of the most respected publications covering the region. DRI inherits this approach and offers clients in the private, public, and nonprofit sectors worldwide access to an exclusive network of subject matter experts and analysts. Whatever your needs in the wider Asia-Pacific region, DRI can offer the knowledge and expertise necessary to anticipate and manage geopolitical and geoeconomic risks. For more information, please visit dri.thediplomat.com. Thanks a lot for listening, and we'll be back soon with more.